We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Today, so Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, continuing on our series through the book of Colossians, beginning in verse 1. To verse 17. I'm just going to read this whole section and then I will pray for us. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Our triune God, we thank You for the efficacy of Your holy word. We thank You that Its truth is able to transform our hearts despite our circumstances or the imperfection and brokenness of the vessels who declare it. So Lord, please take Your Word and use it according to Your good purposes. Call in those who are lost and wondering. Humble the prideful. Lift up the despairing. Encourage the downcast. Chastise the wayward. And feed us all who are spiritually hungry. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, God invites us, very simply, to live as though the gospel that we profess to be true is actually true. He invites us to live as though the gospel we profess to believe is actually true. Now this sounds 
very basic. It seems very basic, and yet we know from experience, don't we, that this is easier said than done. To live as though the gospel we profess to be true is actually true. And in this letter, Paul works with a very important assumption. He assumes, Paul assumes, that there is a lifestyle that is fitting for a Christian and there is a lifestyle that is unbecoming of Christians. There is a lifestyle that is fitting for Christians and there's a lifestyle that's unbecoming for Christians. And in this way, he flies in the face of those who would say that the way you live your life is of no consequence so long as you believe in Christ. Paul says, no, the way you live matters. There is a lifestyle, he says, that matches the gospel. There's a lifestyle that, that matches the gospel. It corresponds with it and harmonizes with it and adorns it. And there is a lifestyle that contradicts the gospel. And in this passage, God, through the Apostle Paul, commands us to live in a way that befits the gospel that we proclaim. And he does this in a very practical way. He describes this for us. He gives us examples of what this look like, looks like. And so, in a very real way, you don't have to wait until the end of this sermon to receive a pastoral charge. In a very real way, this whole passage is a pastoral charge for us to obey. It's a charge for us to pursue holy living. But the way that Paul makes this point is so wonderfully unintuitive. Right? We would assume that the way you make this point, this point that there is a way that's fitting for Christians to live and a way that's not, we would assume that the way you make that point is with a little tough love. Right? For Paul to sort of get up into our face and scream at our face like a drill instructor. But that's not how he does it. No, he instead surrounds his charge for holy living. He surrounds it. He soaks it. He saturates it in a glut of assurance and comfort. He first situates our identity so firmly in Christ, apart from anything that we do, that it sounds almost irresponsible. It feels almost scandalous, right? So that his instruction to live a Christian life becomes almost paradoxical. Right? His instruction basically amounts to him saying, you are so firm in Christ, so act like it. Be who you are. You've died in Christ. Or, sorry, you've died to your sin, so kill your sin. You've put off your sin, so put off your sin. You've been made holy, so be holy. Right? And in this way, Paul can be overtly practical with what we should stop doing, very specific with what we should stop doing and what we should start doing, he can do that without even for a moment giving the impression that the things we do somehow make us right with God. And as always, kids, I may ask kids, I want to say I'm glad that you're here and I want to summarize this, the, the point of this sermon for you. So if you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember this. That God wants you to love Jesus and he wants for your life to show your love for Jesus. He wants you to love Jesus and he wants for your life to show that you love 
Jesus. And I'll explain what that means as we continue on, but that is the point of this sermon. Now, let me tell you where we're going this morning. This morning, we're going to look at this passage in three sections. The first, in the first section, we're reminded of who we are. In the second section, we see characteristics of a mind set on earth. And then in the third section, we're going to see characteristics of a mind set on heaven. So who we are, characteristics of a mind set on earth, and characteristics of a mind set on heaven. Let's begin with verse 1 as Paul reminds us of who we are in Christ. He says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So right from the very beginning of this passage, Paul appeals to this idea of union with Christ as the rationale for everything else that he's about to say. If you have been raised with Christ. You, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is picking up from last week's passage when Paul says in chapter 2, verse 20, that if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in them, do you submit to regulations? You've died to Christ, Paul is saying. You've died to this world and the things in this world. What does that mean? Well, Paul, what, what is Paul talking about when he says that we have died with Christ and that we've risen with Him? Well, in a sense, this is a mystery. This is a mystery that we're not going to comprehend. Right? The, the Holy Spirit supernaturally binding us to Christ in a way that escapes our comprehension. So there is mystery at the bottom of this. Nevertheless, it's a mystery that's crucial for Scripture's understanding of what it means to actually be saved. So we have to wrestle with this and embrace it. And this idea with union with Christ is inextricably tied to our understanding of justification. Right? Justification is that glorious doctrine of God's legal declaration. His legal declaration, His pronouncement that on behalf of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we who come to Him by faith are now declared no longer guilty and are now declared righteous. So Jesus receives all of our sins and suffers the guilt, uh, the, the, the death that we deserve. And in exchange, we receive all of His righteousness and enjoy the eternal life that He deserves. Theologians, of course, refer to this as the great exchange, right? We exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. We exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. We benefit from this exchange by faith and faith alone. That is justification. We come to Christ by faith, and on behalf of the work of Christ, God declares us no longer guilty and now righteous. And this idea of union with Christ is tied to this idea of justification. And this exchange doesn't work in some distant way. Right Where we stand afar off. We've talked about this before. It doesn't work. This exchange doesn't work like this. Where we stand afar off, I sort of toss Christ my sin and He tosses me His righteousness in an impersonal way. No, this exchange happens 
through union with Christ. And this is why justification and union with Christ are talked about so often close together, even here in Colossians. So right in in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's union with Christ. Then he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's justification. So for those who come to Christ by faith, all our record of debt, every sin that we commit, have committed, or will commit, every sin that we have have committed, will commit, or are committing, which threatens to condemn us. That whole record of debt has been set aside and nailed to the cross. And so the question is, how did it get there? How did our sin actually get there? And the answer is, it got there when the Spirit of Christ supernaturally united us to Christ so that we, with our record of debt, were nailed to the cross with Him. I love how one pastor puts it. I've said this before. He says, Christ didn't die so that you could live. That's how we're accustomed to talking about the gospel. He says, no, Christ didn't die so that you could live. Christ died so that in Christ you could die. Christ died, Christ was buried so that in Christ you could be buried, and Christ was resurrected so that in him you could be resurrected to walk in newness of life. You see, Christ received all my sins because the Holy Spirit united me to him in a mysterious and yet real way. In such a way that my sinful flesh was crucified with him. So when he was resurrected, he brought me with him. So do you see Paul's logic here in Colossians 3 then? He says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is and where you are if you are united with him. Set your mind on things that are in heaven, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Who is where? In heaven. You set your mind on things that are in heaven because that is where Christ is and that is where you are if you have been united to Him. Union with Christ means that when Christ was resurrected and ascended into heaven, He brought us who come to Him by faith with Him. He brought us there with Him. That's your true home, Christian. The kingdom of God where Christ rules and reigns. Now, it's very important that we realize this doesn't mean that we must have a dislike for all things physical or earthy. We shouldn't have a dislike for all things physical or earthy. The new heavens and the new earth that we look forward to is not some ethereal, floaty cloud place, disembodied and boring. That's not what we look forward to. We look forward to a resurrected earth. The earth itself is good. It's God's work. It was His idea. It was his idea to to create us as ensouled bodies and embodied souls. It was his idea to create matter. And he's going to restore it. So when we're told to set our minds on things that are in heaven, not on things that are on earth, we're not told to despise physical reality. We are rather being told to have a loose grip on everything that is passing away have a loose grip on everything that's passing away. We're being told to realize our true identities in Christ. In Him, we have everything that we could ever long for or need. He is our identity. But of course, 
This all feels very theoretical when we just keep it there. What does it actually look like for us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth? What does it look like for us to live this reality of our union with Christ? Well, Paul makes it very clear for us. So the second section shows us some characteristics of a mindset on earth. And this is what it looks like to live out our true identity in Christ. It looks like putting these things away. So verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Being heavenly-minded, apparently, has a lot of earthly consequences. Right? He says, be heavenly-minded, therefore, do a whole bunch of stuff on earth. Put to death what is earthly among you. This means that it's impossible to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Have you guys heard that phrase before? Hey, make sure when you get some time away and you read your theology and you read your Bible, make sure that you're not so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Impossible. It can't be done. You can't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. The saints in, in the history of the church who have been the most earthly good have been the most heavenly-minded. Being heavenly-minded looks like doing earthly good. And specifically here, it looks like putting your sins to death. <laughs> Notice this. Paul calls your personal sin a corporate concern. He calls your personal sin a corporate concern. For the sake of the body, put your sin to death. Why is that? Because our true selves have died to those things already. Put your sin to death because you've died to your sin. This may feel like a paradox or a contradiction or, or a redundancy, but it is, it is close to the mystery of the Christian life. It's the heart of the Christian life. You have died to your sins, therefore put your sins to death. You have been made holy, therefore be holy. Be who you are. Right? Remember kids, remember what was the point of this sermon? point is that God wants us to love Jesus and he wants for our lives to show our love for Jesus. And here's one way that you can show your love for Jesus. You say no to sin. Right? You say no to sin. If, if we come to trust in Jesus, he promises to help us say no to our sin. He forgives us of all our sin and then he helps us to love him and he helps us to show our love for him by helping us to say no to our sin because he loves us. So saying no to sin is one way that we can show our love for Jesus. Paul says that looking to heaven helps us to put away what is earthly among us. That is, characteristics of a mindset on earth. And these characteristics include sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and the idolatry of covetousness. And how can we miss the emphasis that Paul places on sexual sin here? He says sexual immorality and then a whole bunch of words that, that fit together with that theme. And the, the, is there any wonder why he does this? There shouldn't be. Especially for us in our culture. The, the ubiquity of sexual sin and brokenness is indeed pervasive in our culture. Right? Our society 
has by and large collectively decided to make sexual desire the centerpiece of, hum- of, of, of our human identity. It's that big of a deal for us in our society. And yet, it's important for us to realize that sexual sin has always ravaged the church because sexual sin has always ravaged fallen humanity. There was never a golden age when, when Christians did not need to hear put away sexual immorality. That, that, that day never existed. Right? And Paul specifically uses this term, uh, the, these broad terms, to cover every form of sexual brokenness. Isn't he a genius for doing this? Right? Because we're just constantly looking for loopholes. Well, at least, I didn't, at least I didn't cross that line. He says, no, put away all sexual immorality, which, if you need it to be very specific, is any kind of sexual act, mental or physical, that is outside of an act of intimacy between a husband and his wife. That's it. Any sexual act that falls outside of that category is sexual immorality that Paul says to put away. And notice also how he says, how he identifies covetousness with this group of sins. Isn't this interesting? Covetousness, which is the sinful desire for something that someone else has, something that doesn't belong to you. That's what covetousness is. This thing has not been given to me, but I sinfully want it. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get it. And really, when you think about it, that's what sexual sin is. It is the sinful desire for something that God has not given. The sinful desire for something that does not belong to you. Not all covetousness is sexual, but all sexual sin is covetousness. And according to Paul, it is idolatry. And verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. (laughs) Our sense of proportion with respect to the severity of sin is totally out of whack, isn't it? Right? (laughs) We think that the wrath of God is coming and should come for things like murder or genocide or human trafficking or slavery. Right? It's right for the wrath of God to come for those things. But a little bit of covetousness? A little bit of lust? And yet, God hates these things. And He's right to do so. And He tells us that tolerating these things in our lives is unbecoming for Christians. Making peace with those kinds of sin in our lives is not fitting for, for a Christian. He goes on to say in verse 7, In these you too once walked. You didn't fight against them. You just walked in these things at one time when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And then he adds to his list of characteristics of an earthly mindset. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. (laughs) Guys, let me invite you to do the painful thing. Do the difficult and painful thing, brothers and sisters, and hold these verses, seven and eight, up to your social media engagement. Hold these verses up and compare them to your social media engagement. Even your thoughts and the things going on in your mind and heart when you're scrolling through social media. Is there sinful anger there? Is there wrath? Is there malice? Is there slander? Is there obscene talk? Paul says, put it away. Put it away. It might look like literally putting your phone away for a while. And don't miss Paul's rationale for tying all of this to Jesus' ascension and place in heaven. Here's the point. All sin is going to pass away. 
It's not everlasting. It's worldly in the sense that it, it, it marks a way of living that is in the domain of darkness, under the authority of sin. And Paul says that authority is going to be overturned and cast out. So, investing in that way of living, investing in that which is passing away is just foolish. It's a bad investment. Right? It's like boarding the Titanic after it's begun to sink. It's like walking into a burning building to take a nap. It's just a bad idea. Paul says, get your perspective right. Don't spend yourself on that which is passing away, that which God hates. No, invest in that which is going to last forever, that which is commanded by your resurrected king. Invest in the kingdom, right? Get used to living joyful, holy lives now because that is what we're going to be doing for eternity. Forever we're going to be living that way. So we might as well get used to it right now. Stop living in that which is going to pass away. He goes on in verse 9 to say that here, that is in this particular community, among those who have put off the old self and have put on the new self, in the community of Christ, Paul says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In the church, in the global community of God, Christ is the most important. Christ is all and in all. What does this mean? That here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, etc. What does this mean? Well, it does not mean that the good created physical differences among individuals will somehow disappear when they become Christians. That's not what this means. Nor should it mean that, right? Those differences are good, right? It's a good thing that we have men and women Christians. It's a good thing that we have black Christians and white Christians and Chinese Christians and Iranian Christians and Ethiopian Christians. It's a good thing that we have Christians who speak English and Christians who speak Arabic and Christians who speak Spanish, etc., etc. It's a good thing. These are good differences. So they're not going to go away. Paul is not saying that those differences disappear. He's saying that in Christ, those differences are no longer an occasion for anger, wrath, and malice against one another. In other words, in Christ, and only in Christ, does racism find its ultimate death. Now, quick parenthetical tangent. I want to talk about racism just for a moment. It's not the main aspect of this uh, passage, but I think it's important that we wrestle with this topic uniquely as Christians, right? It is crucial that we understand the problem of racism biblically as Christians. And this means, first of all, recognizing it as real. Racism is real. Scripture addresses it. It addresses it here in a, in, a, in a way, even in this passage. So we have to recognize it. The Christian perspective of racism is to hate it and to work against it and where we find it in our own hearts to confess it and repent of it. And sometimes when necessary, this might even look like taking social action to resist it. So it's right for Christians to refuse to be calloused when we hear words like racism or oppression or injustice. Right? We should care about these words. 
We should identify them and define them biblically as sins. And for that matter, it's also right for Christians in America specifically to recognize our country's long history of legally enshrined racism and the ongoing effects of that sort of thing. So it's right for us when we hear those words, our ears should perk up. We should have a gravitational pull toward those words, toward, toward reacting to those words. They're important words. Justice is close to the heart of God. But we should also be aware, brothers and sisters, that not everyone who uses words like injustice, racism, or oppression come with the same definitions that, that harmonize with Scripture. Not everyone who uses those words, injustice, racism, oppression, mean the same thing by them, what Scripture means by them. For example, I would say the top contending definition of racism in our culture today simultaneously wants to call it less than what Scripture calls it and more than what Scripture calls it. So on the one hand, in contrast to Scripture, the present worldly definition of racism insists that racism isn't a sin per se, but rather a, a whole superstructure of social conditions that people necessarily engage in, and they sometimes engage in it amorally, right? So, so you, can, you can be a racist amorally, but according to Scripture, there is nothing amoral about racism. It's a wicked and heinous sin. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. So, on the one hand, the present top contending worldly definition of racism calls it less, than what Scripture calls it. It also calls it more, though, because on the other hand, the present worldly definition of racism insists upon racism's omnipotence. It attributes to racism an all-power on par with God. Racism, we are told, can never die. It can never be overcome. And certainly not by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And this means that in a culture that is mostly white, White people cannot not be racist, by definition, because of the place of majority that they occupy. They can never overcome the racism. They should never, we're told, they should never ask if racism is present, but rather always ask how racism is present. But listen, this is very important, brothers and sisters. A definition of racism that insists upon reducing the whole world into categories of perceived cultural power where power is everything and everyone is either an oppressor or a victim, that way of, of painting the, the, the picture of humanity is unbiblical. Is unbiblical. You see, when racism ceases to be a sin, Christ ceases to be the solution. But if it is a sin, then it has a foe who can and does atone for it and vanquish it and empower victory over it. And His name is Jesus Christ. Now, there is, of course, a lot more to say about this topic. But the charge at present is to go to the Scriptures to allow God's Word to shape our worldview and inform our actions. Right? And as we do so, we should be aware that there are counterfeit worldviews that use the same words that we use. So we need to be vigilant and be biblical. Okay, close parentheses, moving back to our passage. Paul just says, Paul just told us to put off the old self and put on the new self. But what does putting on the new self actually look like? We know putting off the old self looks like putting away sins that we could be tempted to tolerate in our lives, but what does putting on the new self 
look like? Well, he tells us, beginning in verse 12, these are characteristics of a mindset on heaven. He says, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does it look like to live out your heavenly mindedness? Being heavenly minded looks like compassionate hearts. It looks like kindness. It looks like humility and meekness and patience. So the opposite of too much of what we see on social media, in other words. If you want to see what heavenly mindedness looks like, you get on Facebook and then you just do the photo negative of that. Now, being heavenly minded looks like putting on love. And love is a huge theme in this, this book of Colossians, right? In Colossians 2.5, Paul prays that the Colossians would be knit together in love. And in 1.8, Paul thanks God for their love in the Spirit. And here he says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. So this worldly, other, spirit-wrought, heavenly love, which is the product of being heavenly-minded, in other words, is oriented horizontally. That heavenly love, we, 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 we set our minds on things that are in heaven, and then we're oriented a particular way so that our love is directed horizontally to others. It's oriented horizontally in earthy ways. It looks like, in other words, being heavenly minded looks like earthy relationships. It looks like getting real close with other Christians in community. So close it hurts. Close enough to be harmed by one another. Close enough to be annoyed by one another. I mean, consider that example of bearing with one another, that phrase bearing with one another. I love that Paul uses the phrase bearing with one another because it lets me know that Paul knows from experience how messy Christian community can be sometimes. I mean, just think about this. Who do you not have to bear with? Who's the person that you do not have to bear with? The person that you're always getting along with. Who do you have to bear with? You have to bear with the person who gets on your nerves right? Put, bear with them. Consider also that word forgiveness. Consider this. You can't actually forgive a person unless they have truly wronged you. Have you thought about that? You can excuse somebody that you, that you thought wronged you, but you've come to discover actually haven't, but you cannot actually forgive someone unless they have truly wronged you, which means in order to forgive, you got to get close enough to get wronged by other Christians. You have to get close enough to get wronged in order to forgive. Sure, you can protect yourself so that you're never hurt by others, but then you're never able to show forgiveness either. And that's something God commands us to do. And Paul says this, as the Lord has forgiven you, says Paul, so you also must forgive. That means that bitterness is always inexcusable. Bitterness is never excusable. You don't know how deeply they've wronged me though, Paul, we say. And Paul would say in response, have they wronged you more than you've wronged God? Would your forgiveness outdo God's forgiveness to you? Then forgive. Forgive. And implied here is the crucial lesson that our forgiveness towards others is motivated by and sourced in God's forgiveness towards us. 
When we come to recognize how much it is we have been forgiven by God, it overflows and is extended towards forgiveness to other people. Who am I to hold a grudge of this petty little sin that they've committed against me when God has forgiven me of so much? That's the idea. Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's a plural word there. Dwell in y'all richly. Dwell in you as a whole church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Guys, just notice the contrast of this heavenly-minded living with earthly-mindedness. Right? One of the characteristics we saw from having your mindset on earth is covetousness, which is the photo-negative of thankfulness, gratitude. You're not coveting after other things when you're just grateful for what you have. It's the photo-negative of that. The description of this community here in these verses, 12 through 17, is so beautiful. And it is so different than what, we common, than, than what is common in our world, especially in our world today. What we don't see in, here, in these five verses, what we don't see is a community that is ravaged by bitterness and resentment and covetousness and envy and fear and anxiety. You don't see that in these verses. Rather, the picture that Paul paints is a community that's marked by gratitude and a peace of Christ. It's marked by a gratitude that penetrates deep down. A love and a thankfulness and a buoyancy because Christ is a centralizing and secure ballast. We see thankfulness here. We see bravery and cheerfulness. We see genuine love for one another. And kids, this is another way that you can show your love for Jesus. Remember, the point of this sermon is that you love Jesus and you show your love for Jesus by the way that you live your life. One way that you can show your love for Jesus is by being thankful. You can show your thankfulness in a lot of ways. You can show your thankfulness when you pray before meals and thank God for your food without complaining about it, right? You can show your thankfulness when you say thank you to your mom and dad for taking care of you and loving you. Let me just tell you, kids, God loves when you are thankful. And adults, God loves when you're thankful and not discontent like we so often are. We are so discontent. But God loves it when we're thankful. And this gratitude, this gratitude in this Christian community overflows into Christ-adoring worship. Being heavenly-minded looks like Christ-honoring worship singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Songs, by the way, that help us in our responsibility to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, which means they should be substantial, weighty, and truthful songs. It should be theologically rich songs that are packed with density in them, with doctrine that can keep us sturdy while the winds and waves of life pound away at us. That's why we care about the words that we sing at this church. Theologically rich songs, that's what we're after. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we would see our hearty worship through song as a service to one another. Oh, that we would be eager to encourage and exhort and teach one another, even through song. 
Being heavenly minded looks like doing these things. It looks like doing everything in your life as an act of worship. We do these things because we have been united to our resurrected king. And living this way is fitting for such people. We don't live this way to become Christians. We live this way because we are Christians. And it's right for Christians to live this way. We always live more and more to put off sin and put on holiness because we are united to our resurrected King who dwells now in heaven where there is no sin and all holiness. We do these things because that is what it looks like to live out our true identity in Christ. We can live, this is so important, we can live joyful, holy lives because in our union with Christ we have been united to holiness and life, and our heavenly future is all joy and holiness and life. That's where we're going. So let's start going there. And as we celebrate this meal of communion then, let us resolve to continually put off the old self and put on the new self. Let us recognize this meal and its corporate dimension. This meal is a meal of fellowship. And as we eat and drink these very meager elements, right, a little bit of bread, a little cup of juice. Let us recognize them for the weighty reality of which they are an emblem. They are more than what they appear to be. Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness for us. He shed His blood on the cross to atone for our sin. He went to the grave for us who are dead in our trespasses and He was resurrected to announce His victory and secure our justification. He ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father and to seat us there with Him. Us, we who are the body, the community of this spirit-wrought love, we testify to these things and we participate in spiritual fellowship with Christ and one another at this table. And we do it all with a little bit of bread and a tiny cup of juice. So let us therefore resolve as we share this meal together to open our hearts to one another. And I just invite you to do that, brothers and sisters. Open your hearts to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us resolve to show compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience towards one another. Let us resolve to bear with one another and forgive one another and put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.